Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good morning once again. I hope that uh, you came today excited. I hope you came today to participate a little bit. So I'm going to start just like this. Last week, we talked about this concept of being a disciple of Jesus. And the question was asked, are you, simply put, are you a disciple of Jesus? And so here's what we're going to do. I want you to take a minute, and I want you to look to your neighbor, and I want you to say, if you said, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, I want you to say, I am in the family of God. Take a minute. Go ahead. All right. I hear some laughing. That's good. That's good. That, that uncomfortability that goes with like looking at some. Okay. Now I want you to look at the other person on the other side, the second place neighbor, the person who you chose not to talk to uh, the first time. I want you to look to them and I want you to say, actually, we are all in the family of God. All right. Well done. Well done. We're all in the family of God. And that statement is interesting. We, meaning all of us, right? We, meaning plural. This is, this is a, a, a joint venture, not just individual. All, meaning that there's not like a limitation. Uh, we're in, which means that we're, we're part of this group. We're uh, in the family of, or in the family, which is a, a relational thing. And then we're in the family of God, which is certainly um, recognizable as well. Something far beyond something of this world. And so as we look specifically at this, am I still there? You guys hear me okay? I feel like I'm going in and out. <laughs> Nothing new, right? As we look specifically at what it means to be part of the family of God, we're going to engage in this series, All in the Family, by looking directly and specifically at what it means to be a, a, a member of the family that honors God and honors one another. In fact, the, the, the tagline, so to speak, for this series is empowering the family of God by exploring the relationship of humanity. And so in the subsequent weeks, we're going to look at different relationships uh, throughout the context of Scripture through uh, some relationships that were good, some relationships that were not so good, and what we can learn from those. And today we're going to look directly and specifically at the, the lineage of Jesus and what it means to be part of his family. How would you... Just take a moment and think about this. It can be rhetorical. How would you describe your family? How would you describe it? Some of you started to think about the attributes that would describe your family, the specific things. That's not what I'm asking. The question I want to ask you is how would you describe your family, meaning how would you describe? What attributes would you use? What form? What, what test? What examples? What elements would you use to draw a picture to help us find your family? One specific way that I know that we can find uh, a way to define our family is that of looking at our lineage, looking specifically and directly at our ancestry, our forefathers, our foremothers, those that came before us. My parents got into Ancestry.com a number of years ago, and from that they have uh, had a great time traveling around and, and finding cemeteries and different things that have, are, are forgotten or that are on somebody's property, and they have to go and ask permission to check things out, and they go to all these places and do these different things. And even specifically this past year, they actually went down to the Ark Encounter. They are they're going way back, and they're trying to find—I'm just kidding. That was a joke. 
Fortunately, they found that we came from human descent and not. Okay, all right. My mic's working. I'm going to get back to it. So, in essence, as we look specifically at how we define our family, one of the ways that we can do so is by looking at the history, looking at our lineage, exploring the things in our genealogy that bring forth a reality of what we know today. I know that there are difficult passages to preach on because I have preached on some of those, and certainly I've heard this before, there's three different types of passages that are difficult to preach on. One are those that are very common. Right? If I were to preach on Noah's Ark today, if I were to preach on uh, you know, the, the baptism of Jesus or uh, the, the, the nativity story, you know those. If you've been around church for very long, you know those stories, those passages well. And so sometimes there's a tendency to kind of just clock out for the amount of time the sermon happens. On the other end, there's those, those difficult passages to preach on that are, are some that you don't know at all, that we don't know at all. We don't experience very often. They're in some of the books that you don't read very much. You don't even know how to pronounce some of their names, which we'll get to that in just a moment. But you, you have these specific passages that are really difficult to understand because you don't really know much about them. They're very foreign to us. And then the third one, and this is a professor told me this, one of the third uh, and most difficult passages to preach on are the lists, Right? The lists of names, the lists of rules, the lists of numbers of people that lined up for different things. All of these lists that specifically in most cases we just, and if you're honest and I'm honest, we just skip over those sometimes. The passage I want to look at today specifically is a list and I know that this matters. It's the genealogy of Jesus. I know it matters because scripture says it matters. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reads, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for each and every good work. The genealogy of Jesus is important. It's actually the first thing that Matthew writes about. You know, a lot of times, especially around Christmas, we skip that and we go right to that, that nativity when Jesus was born and we read about all the things that took place in this story about how he came into the world. And it's interesting to note that specifically for Matthew, it was important to keep this in there, to have this specific passage because he knew his audience. His audience specifically had an idea and understanding of what genealogy was supposed to look like and particularly where the Messiah was supposed to come from. His audience was Jewish and it was important for them to recognize the fulfillment of the prophecy that this Messiah was to come from the line of the King David. And so this messianic promise of Jesus coming, this birth of Jesus coming was only important, only made possible, only confirmed because of the passage prior, which is Matthew chapter 1. The Jewish audience wanted to know Jesus' heritage. And if it came through the son of David, if he was the son of David, this messianic title, then they were going to give it the, the need and they were going to give it the authority to which Jesus required. I have never read the passage that I'm going to preach on more times than I did this week. As a, at a young age, I don't remember which teacher it was. I know that it was difficult for me to read. And so I know one time coming home, I to myself thought I'm not a good reader. And for whatever reason, that's been pressed upon me. I know that sometimes even speaking up here or preaching or even having conversation that I can be the shortcoming that can, that can make it difficult for us to respond or understand what God's doing. But let me just say today as we read this, don't let my deficiency distract what God wants to do. Are we ready? Yeah. 
Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brother, and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of, of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And it seemed like in the exile, all of a sudden, they said, hey, let's go ahead and make up a bunch of uh, names that are even more difficult. <laughs> because what's to come, the best is yet to come, right? It said in verse 12, after the exile of Babylon, Jeconia and his father, Sh oh, man, Shatiel, uh, I'll just put a little circle with an SP in the middle, Shaquille and, and the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of, of Abihub, Abihab, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, here we know, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who, call, who is called the Messiah. I'm going to read that last part again. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Can I hear an amen, please, on that? As we explore this, let us look at it not simply as a mere list, but as an intentional scribe, an intentional text, an intentional introduction to the coming of the Messiah. Here, Matthew recognized the fact that family was important. In fact, family sets the framework to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. You know, we don't get this as much anymore, particularly in our own lives, because we have this individualistic mentality, right? This, well, I grew up in a small town, but I left all that and went to this other place and did big, did big great things, right? I was able to, to rise from the ashes of my family and do these other things. Well, in recognition, there's a reason why God put us in or allowed us to be in the families that we're in. And in a lot of ways, those are the, the, the purposes, those are the ways, those are the functions, those are the things that help us to understand and to know what God wants to do in and through us. And particularly, spiritually speaking, when we look at the recognition of Jesus's life and we look at Jesus's genealogy, I would say, and perhaps you could say, that he stepped forward in a way that far surpassed 
the, 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 the heritage that he was born into. Have you been to a wedding lately? Anybody? Okay. Four of you will recognize. I'm going to talk to you right here. In a wedding, there are specific things that are necessary for legal reasons, right? There has to be an I do or a yes or an affirmation in some way by the bride and the groom. There has to be a witness there. Typically, there has to be somebody there that that is ordained, which uh, there's particular uh, ways that I would view that. But in any event, there has to be someone there that legally has the, the ability to be able to perform or officiate this wedding. And that's about it. There's not a whole lot else that needs to take place legally. Now, there are other things that are part of it. There's a, a, a giving and receiving of rings. Sometimes there's a unifying uh, symbolic act like a, a, a unity sand or a unity candle or something along those lines, tying the, the knot together. Sometimes there's, there's opportunities for someone to read scripture or there's opportunity for, for people to have uh, a, a time of worship or even communion. There's different elements that are part of that. And I, I would venture to say that there needs to be a certain time within the context of the service, within the context of the ceremony, where both the bride and the groom recognize what they're fully getting themselves into. Because when they stand up in front of one another, there's, there's, the, there's the bride and the groom, they're standing up there, they say, I do to one another, right? But I think there needs to be a pause where in the middle of the ceremony, the, the officiant, which uh, I'll do it right now, the officiant recognizes, hey, you know what? Before you say I do to this person, recognize, just lean over and just look over there and recognize all of those people, all those attendants, friends and family that are here supporting the person on this side and recognize for just a moment, when you say I do to this person, you're saying I do to all of those people. In fact, I want all of you to look over to the side and I want you to say, I do, right? Go ahead. Okay, good. Well done. Your turn's next, right? And so then on the other side, before you move on, they, before you say, I do to this person, I want you to say, I do to them. So your turn. Okay. And, and what we've done here is this recognition that as part of this family together, we're not just saying, I do, so to speak, to Jesus when we come to Christ, but we're saying, I do to Jesus' whole family. Right, and as we look specifically and directly at Matthew's account of the genealogy, his recognition here is, look, you are stepping into this relationship with Christ, but in so doing, you're recognizing, reflecting upon the fact that, that even in the midst of this genealogy, which we're going to unpack some of these individuals in a moment, no matter if they're good or bad in our eyes, we are accepting and being part of this family with all of them. And that has an implication on our lives. In fact, the first point is this. Your lineage is connected to your destiny. And the response there is this. No matter where these people came from within the context of of Jesus' genealogy and where you come from in your life, God has a real lasting purpose. Spiritually speaking, your lineage is connected to your destiny. If your lineage is that of stepping into a relationship with Jesus and following him, then your life, your reflection, your purpose, everything you are as a child of God in the lineage of Jesus has purpose, has hope. Matthew's recording of Jesus's great commission, those disciples, right? Disciples who make disciples indicates that as a follower of Jesus, we step in wholeheartedly in the midst of the messy family that we hear about here in Matthew's account and that we probably see sometimes in our own world. We make disciples who make disciples. See, the world would have you believe that your identity is something that's temporary, Your identity is something that doesn't even matter, but instead, in looking at the lineage of Jesus, we recognize and reflect upon the fact that our identity is in Christ. Furthermore, they'd have you believe that your purpose is temporary or that you don't even have a purpose at all. 
But instead, the recognition is that in all things within the context of this genealogy is that it all points towards Jesus. Matthew makes that very clear. When you know your identity, you know your assignment to live. You know your purpose and you have hope in that purpose. Family shapes who you are. Jesus' lineage matters and you matter. Your lineage matters. In fact, once again, remember, we are all in the family. I'm going to take a break for just a second. I'm actually going to sit down on this couch. I, um, I think I said this earlier. I don't sit on this very often. I know why. It's not even very comfortable. I apologize for the people that come in my office and sit down. But I'm taken back by just the, the sheer uh, symbolic nature of what it means to have a seat here at the couch. Have a seat here in the living room. I don't know how you grew up. And and let me just say, we're all part of the family. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to share some stories and illustrations this morning that illustrate our family together, namely the ones that I have shared blood with. But you're part of their family too, just so you know. But as you sit down in these specific seats, I'm reminded, or I sit down, I'm reminded of, of what it looks like to have a seat to be part of the family particularly by what I used to do as a child every single week after church. After church, we would go to my grandmother's house, and my grandmother's house would be packed with people. We had a, a larger family, and she would have everybody over for, uh, for Sunday dinner right after church. And we'd go to the house. Uh, it wasn't a situation where we would all sit down, and there would be 35 different uh, um, forks on the table, and you'd all sit down, and it was, it was all very uh, you know, organized, and everything was perfect. Instead, Grandma would take that, the dining room table, and it would be covered with all the different types of food that we were going to have. And she would make a meal for everyone, enough for everyone to eat and then some. And at that point, because the table was covered with food, there was no place to sit. Basically, what you would do is you would find a seat. You would make a seat. In fact, you would sit, you know, there'd be four or five kids sitting along this holding their plate. Somebody would sit here and then somebody would have to move this stuff. And this would be a seat here too. And the recognition was that there was always enough room for another person. There was always another seat at the table. This is a profound thought as we look specifically at the genealogy of Matthew because in his recognition, in his recording specifically of what it means to be part of the genealogy of Jesus, to be part of God's story, God's line, is that there was always room at the table. There was always room at the the figurative table or the literal table to be able to be with Jesus. In fact, what he was saying is we are all part of the family of God. God has granted us, this is the point, God has granted us the invitation for all people to be welcome at his table. There's room, so to speak, at the house. There's room in this place. There's room for us all to be gathered together. Some would might believe that it was unnecessary for Matthew to put some of these individuals specifically in this lineage. Because we live in a world where, hey, the undesirables, the people that we don't really want anybody to know about or to see, we kind of hide them. We live in a world where we put everything just so, so that our story that our, our, or, our, um, or our, our social media accounts all will reveal a specific personality or specific posture, specific way that we want everybody else to see us or to recognize us or to assume that we live or the way that we live. And so in recognition of this specific thing, what takes place here is instead of Matthew saying, okay, I'm going to hide these other people and I'm going to put the the good ones out front. Instead, he actually 
points out, he actually specifically focuses on some of the shortcomings of the individuals that were in Jesus' line. The broad scope of these people that, that make up God's line and genealogy were not always saints. They didn't always do everything right. In fact, King David himself is pointed out in Matthew's genealogy as one that fell short. The intentional structure specifically of this genealogy is situated in another, in, in necessary points. It, it bears profound meaning. The first thing is Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to the exile, 14 generations. Where are we at? 14 plus 14, anybody? 20, all right, good, very good. And then the exile to Jesus, 14 more generations. So math majors, where are we at? Okay, if you have done any research at all on the genealogy of Jesus and look specifically at the first accounts from those who wrote them in the gospel, you'll recognize that that's not the same number that we see from Luke's account. Luke doesn't have 42. Instead, his number is different. And there's a, 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 a pause moment there, a ponderable moment there, particularly when we see a place in Scripture that you might look at and say, well, this doesn't make sense. These things don't line up. There's, there must be something wrong. Well, in fact, what Matthew is doing here is he's specifically highlighting some, th some things that are important for those uh, in his audience to recognize and in us as well. Luke's different because he has some that aren't in Matthew's. They don't match up. And perhaps... In this, we can learn more than just what it means to list a name. Matthew actually cut people out. He cut people out of the genealogy. And, and, and in most cases, when we look at that, we'd say, okay, he's beefing up Jesus' resume. He's saying, okay, there's specific things here that we don't necessarily want people to know about. And so we're going to just take the best ones. We're going to put them out. But in essence, what he does is the exact opposite. He's scrolling through the account and he's saying, okay, here's a bad picture. This is just a, it doesn't show a good side of Jesus. And so I'm going to leave that in. And not only that, I'm going to make it one of the, the main uh, photos that people are going to see when they visit his account. Or they, he said, okay, you know what, there's, there's other things here that, that are, that are going to maybe cause people to question, or they're going to cause people to be discouraged, or they're going to cause people to wonder about Jesus. And instead of taking those out, he says, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to put a few of those in there. I want everybody to see this. I want everybody to know exactly what's happened. This is a, a, a post the best, hide the mess. That's the opposite, right? He's posting the mess and, and to project an image that uh, instead of that Jesus has it all together, he's posting an image that we all have faults and understanding there. Matthew did a terrible job editing, particularly for those that would have been viewing this at that time, because one thing is, is clear and, and glaring. He included five women in Jesus' genealogy. Five women in his genealogy. And the interesting thing there is that this was not in, in egalitarian society. This is one that would have only recognized the, the, the authority of men. That would have looked at them and said, okay, these are the ones that we can, we, can, we can take and we can hold on to. And we can recognize this is true. And even in that, Matthew was running the risk that they would say, okay, your genealogy and even your book, your gospel is garbage anyway. Because you know what? You couldn't even get this right. But there was intentionality behind that, specifically because of who those women were and the posture that people would have had towards each one of them. These women were not good women. They weren't women that you would look at and say, okay, these are perfect examples of what Jesus would have loved to have in his family tree. Instead, they were women who required grace. And it's interesting to note that he included five because five is the number of grace. 
And grace itself is not something to be earned, not something that we get uh, just by, by going out and purchasing it or working enough. No, grace is a gift that God gives us, a gift that he gave those individuals and he gives to us even today. Let's look directly at them. First is Tamar. Tamar is mentioned early on specifically as just a, 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 a random uh, addition. In verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And it could have moved on, but instead Matthew put whose mother was Tamar. Tamar was, was widowed and overlooked by two brothers. And then additionally, a third brother said, nope, I'm not going to take you on. And from that recognition that she was being basically thrown aside by this family, she, in her own infinite wisdom, decided to trick uh, her, her father-in-law and, 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 and sleep with him. And from that, she became pregnant. And as a result of that pregnancy, was going to be killed because of the fact that she was uh, pregnant and not married. But before she was killed, she was able to take a moment to publicly say, hey, just so everybody knows... The person who got me pregnant was my father-in-law. And at that point, he said, whoa, 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 let's not do this. And, and instead of burning her at the stake, she was saved. Someone that you want to put in your family tree, particularly that you don't necessarily have to. You can look that up in Genesis 28. The next one is Rahab. And here, uh, Rahab in verse 5, it says, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, not necessary. Does not need to be there. But Matthew saw, foot, saw fit to put Rahab, a prostitute, in this story. Rahab, one that, that was a servant of God, that, that hid the spies, that was there to help out, which I thought was interesting that they knew where Rahab's house was, but hey, let's just move on. And so they, they go and she helps them out. And here, even though she does this good deed in her life, she still has this one title of prostitute with her name for eternity, for, for all time. And then Ruth. And perhaps you know the story of Ruth, you know about her story, you think, well, that's, that's not a bad one. Let's just say this, Ruth was a Moabite. And if you don't know this, particularly at that time, and particularly what the Jews would know as they read this from Matthew's account, Moabites were pagans. Well, wait a minute, Jesus the Messiah can't have a pagan in his lineage. He can't have a pagan running around doing things and saying things. And here again in verse 5 later on, it says, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, Matthew adds in somebody who doesn't need to be there. Her lineage of Jesus was through her marriage and through her, her desire to want to follow and then another one that comes that's it's very interesting. In verse 6, it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. They had a, a, a good marriage. And then Uriah went off to war. And while Uriah was gone, David had an affair with Bathsheba. David, a man after God's own heart, who was here, who was the, the indicator, who was the calibrator that all things were right in the messianic line. And here, David has this affair. And then, after he has an affair, he, he chooses, instead of fessing up or coming forward or stopping, instead he chooses to have someone or have the, 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 the enemy murder or kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And so, conspirator to murder and adulterer. 
And instead of covering that up, Matthew throws us in. They're not even using her by name, but the mother of Solomon, who was the wife of Uriah, pointing towards the infidelity and the murder within Jesus's messianic line. I'm going somewhere, I promise. I'm promise. I don't want you all just to say, well, man, I don't know if I like this. I'm leaving. I've had enough. And then finally, we get to this place. This last one, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Mary, a teenage girl who is pregnant before marriage. A teenage girl who goes around telling people, okay, I know how this looks, but God did it. And we laugh about that now and and probably, I mean, it makes us squirm in our seats a little bit to think about it, but that's the reality of what took place and to think about the grace that was needed for these five individuals, particularly all that were involved and David as well, the grace that was needed and is needed for all individuals beyond what we look at and say, man, these are really bad sins. If you think about it, grace is needed for every single generation and it's still needed for us today. And so while it's easy to be judgmental of the people that might be the undesirables or the ones that we think, I don't think there's enough room at the couch, there's only this much space and I don't think they're squeezing in there, or the ones that we think, you know what, they've done so much, they can't come back. It's easy to think, well, I don't know. But let me just say this. If you are part of the family of God, if you are all in the family, then God had to and is still granting you grace as well. And so this all in the family thing, we are all in the family, has more to do with the reality that God chooses to allow you in than it does to judging and to looking at the the, the faults of others. The point is this, God reaches down into human brokenness and uses you for his glory. When Jesus does it, everyone will know that he is the author to all. Everyone will know that he is the one that makes all things new. He is the one who turns, <coughs> who turns seas into highways, bones into armies, and for us spiritually, death into life. Due to the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And then for you, the daughter or son of fill-in-the-blank who now in this moment or can in this moment be the child of God. The bottom line is this, the only thing that makes everything right is the one who is at the center. It doesn't matter what the elements are. It doesn't matter what the lineage looks like in the past. It's the reality that God can and does redeem all people and all things. And when we engage in this series and we step into this all in the family mentality, let us recognize that there's not anyone that's omitted, that there's not a place where we say, okay, there's not enough space. We look at the past, we say, okay, this won't work. Instead, there's this reality that God chooses and wants each one of us to experience his grace.
As, I, as I've thought about this, this series and this idea of genealogy, I've thought about the people in my life that have gone before me, specifically and particularly the, the grandparents that I've had, because those are the ones that I've been able to meet. I haven't been able to meet many that lived before that, just one great-grandmother. And as I've talked to my parents and talked to others about memories from one of my grandfathers particularly, I can't help but realize that the more I hear about, the more I learn about him, I think about, man, I really wish I would have talked to him more. I would have engaged with him more. Perhaps you've heard the question before, what, who is one person in history that you really wish that you could meet? Somebody that you could sit down and have coffee with or tea or, or whatever it might be and just interact with them and hear about their life. Perhaps it is somebody that you knew for a short time or you knew when you were young and they've passed on or maybe they've moved away or, or you just haven't been able to engage with them and you think, man, I really wish I could got to know them better. And sadly, the reality is in some cases, as we look at that, the, the time has passed. If they have passed away, there is no time to engage with them. That moment has passed. But today, as we engage in this all-in-the-family mentality, the recognition is this. I know and you know there's probably some in a room this size who are not part of the family, who had a little bit of a struggle leaning over to their neighbor and saying, I am in the family of God, or we are part of the family of God. Because they don't know. Either through the reality that they've never made an actual decision or maybe because of the fact that they just don't exactly know what this all looks like or what the future looks like or they don't want to let God have full control of their life. You and I recognize that that's probably the case, that there's somebody in this room. And so here's what we're going to do as we launch into this series, as we step forward. I don't want to have any assumption that all of us have said or can say from the bottom of our heart that we are a part of the family of God. Instead, I want us to have the opportunity this morning to respond to it. And perhaps the, 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 the question has been going through your mind all, all week where you've thought about, am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I a follower of God? And if that's you this week and you haven't fully made the decision, maybe today is the moment when you can come and respond to his message. I know and you know that, that there are times in life where we look back and we regret. We say, man, I, I had that opportunity and I missed it. I wish I would have talked to, to, my, to my grandparents more. I wish I would have talked to that person, my parents even. And I wish I would have engaged with them. But now the time is too late. Well, guess what? Now is the time. Don't let it pass. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless. God bless.